From an outside perspective, restaurants are the perfect getaway. Great food, inviting atmosphere, comforting environment. It's an all-around fantastic time for friends and family alike. Though it can be beautiful and enriching from the inside perspective, as a guest, one doesn't see the hardships and stressors of creating a wonderful experience. Every restaurateur goes through struggles and challenges that could make or break them. This podcast aims to explore that, pulling back the curtain and understanding what it's truly like to run these establishments as told by those who do it. I'm Justin Warner, and you're listening to Resto Talk, a podcast brought to you by Touch Bistro. Hello, and welcome to the show. Today, we'll do things a little differently from what we would usually do. Instead of interviewing a restaurateur and learning about their stories and experiences, I will instead be filling that role. Yes, my own self-personal. So this won't be a question and answer style episode, but rather a chance to tell you a little bit about myself and my journey. You know me from this podcast, you know I run two of my own establishments, and you know I've been on TV. So today, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about how it all came to be and how I got to where I am now. So please sit back, enjoy the sweet dulcet tones of my voice, and watch as we dive deep into yours truly. Well, I guess we should start with uh, growing up, right? Because uh, oftentimes that's where we get the bug, right? That restaurant industry bug. As you uh, have heard in the previous episodes, I often ask, where did, where did this start? What was the radioactive spider that bit you that got you here today? And uh, for me, I've always just been fascinated with food. I have loved food uh, as long as I could remember. And I've enjoyed new foods and new combinations and exploring the gastronomic world around me. I kind of put it together that if you want to be around food your whole life, you should probably work in a restaurant. But for me, uh, when I was growing up, I didn't know that I wanted to work in restaurants. I started working in a restaurant as soon as I possibly could because it seemed like the most lucrative. And also, growing up as an only child, I was accustomed to spending time with, dealing with, and interacting with adults. So babysitting, while also somewhat lucrative, was not very appealing to me. I started off as a dishwasher and busboy in a wonderful little pub called Oliver's. And their motto was, consider yourself at home. I realized that I didn't like dishwashing too much. And uh, for a 15-year-old who has a budding ego uh, and is just now starting to understand uh, the ins and outs, if you will, of interacting with adults and themselves, I didn't like having dish belly. Uh, Y'all know dish belly? That's when they don't give you an apron and because you've been spraying dishes, your belly gets wet. I also didn't like that uh, a lot of the pans were hot. And in general, the kitchen was noisy and inelegant. But that being said, the food was mighty good. They had a great French dip. I think they called it the Fort Frederick. I kind of intentionally didn't do a great job as a dishwasher and did a fantastic job as a busboy so that I could spend more time on the floor. It also didn't hurt that I was uh, tipped out at the end of the night. So if I gave great service and the servers gave great service, well, it was a win-win for everyone involved and I would walk home with a pile of cash. With that cash, I would go to a a big box retailer and I would purchase huge packs of gum that I would then sell at a premium in school. I think this was essentially my first uh, food establishment, if you consider gum a food. I didn't know that I wanted to spend the rest of my life in restaurants, but I was addicted to the cash at an early age. From there, I uh, (laughs) used that cash to establish my independence, if you will. And I became a bit of a hellion. So my mother would send me off to live with my uncle for the summers in Colorado. The great thing about uh, Colorado, specifically the tiny town of Estes Park, is that 
it is a tourist economy. And as you've heard over previous episodes, uh, that means high cover counts. That means that every night is a Friday night. And that means by the end of the summer, I was walking home with money to buy a car. I was walking home with a brand new mountain bike. I was walking home with more money than most 16, 17-year-olds could fathom. And it was all because of work. And I figured out early on that hospitality and the way I made people feel was just as important as getting what they wanted. Of course, I didn't know that in those terms at that time. I just knew that if I could charm them, they would maybe palm me an extra 20 and say, have a great summer, kid. And that was a rush. I loved it. I was addicted. I couldn't wait for summers to get back to the job, the Dunraven Inn, it's called, uh, in Estes Park, Colorado, to uh, grease up those customers. And I made friends, lots of friends, most of whom were adults, uh, also people there to take advantage of the tourist economy. I'll never forget uh, one Irish guy looked at me one night after I made just as much money as he did when he was a waiter. And he said, Justin, you're full of bollocks. And I loved that. And I'll never forget it. So after spending time in Colorado, I had one more season before I could serve alcohol. And I worked my senior year of high school at a little brasserie called Rococo. And Rococo was light years ahead of its time from my small hometown in Maryland. It had the first grilled Caesar salad. I'll never forget it with a steak knife uh, stabbed through it. I had my first sweetbreads there. And I was in charge of serving canapes, also known as an amuse-bouche. And I loved it because it gave me an opportunity to articulate food, to describe it, and to serve little things that I had just never seen before. Filo dough, puff pastry, beggar's purses, things tied with chives. It felt fancy. It felt special. And I got to wear a tie. But more than anything, I got to eat the food there. And I just loved that so much. I uh, will never forget, by that time, I had my own apartment. Anyhow, from there, I finally graduated. I was 18 years old, and I started working at an Italian restaurant. I studied the Italian language so that I could uh, better pronounce the things on the menu, but also do deeper dives on the culinary aspects. I knew that I did not fit in in kitchens. I was not gruff enough, tough enough. I didn't like the heat. I didn't like that there was a mess. And ultimately, I didn't know that I could cook. I went back to Colorado and started working in a sushi restaurant. And this was kind of the biggest, most pivotal moment in my career. I met a man named Masa Suzuki. And Masa is a fantastic sushi man to this day. He's brilliant. He's tactical. He's gifted. He understands flavor. And he does sushi in such a clinical way that it's almost to a fault. So when I started working with Masa, I didn't understand how to describe fish flavors. And kind of neither did Masa, at least in English. So we worked together to develop a scatter plot of fish flavors and where fishes correspond. And this is where I think my palate and my ability to talk about food really blossomed. I realized that some fishes tasted fishy, more fishy than other fishes. So at one end of the spectrum, you might have something like fluke or halibut, any of the flat fishes, really. And at the other end of the spectrum, you might have something like a sardine or an anchovy or a mackerel, silver skin fishes. We've now established the x-axis, fishy and not fishy. On the y-axis, we had oily and not oily. Oily, we would describe as the richness of the fish as it melts in your mouth. So something that would be a little fishy, stronger flavored, and pretty oily would be salmon, even more so salmon belly. Something that's not very fishy, but super oily would be 
Toro, tuna belly, something that is very fishy and very oily. Again, mackerel. Of course, there were outliers in the world of fish. Ama ebi, the sweet raw shrimp, uh, also sometimes called the dancing shrimp. Not fishy, not oily, but uh, I learned there that I have a special place in my heart for things that are inimitable. I hate things that taste just like chicken. Even worse, things that have a texture just like chicken. So here I learned about sea urchin, which tastes coppery, metallic of the sea, yet somehow creamy and containing no dairy. I was hooked. I was fascinated. And one day, Masa plopped a little ball in front of me and said, what is it? I chewed it. I could tell that it was a vegetable of some sort, or rather a fruit, because I could tell that it contained seeds. But the seeds were tender and digestible. And then from there, I could faintly taste the flavor of miso and that of mustard. I guessed that it was a miso and mustard marinated baby eggplant. It was the size of maybe a marble. Masa then said, you're good. And from there, uh, my ego swelled and I chased bigger checks and stranger fishes. And I worked at a legendary sushi spot called Sushi Tora. And here, the fishes were, I, I have no clue how they got them. Some speculate there was maybe an underworld connection. I don't know. I can't speculate. But we had fishes that even some Japanese people haven't tried. And my mind just exploded. And around that time, I read a book by Danny Meyer called Setting the Table. A lot of you might know Danny Meyer from Shake Shack, his now uh, global burger empire. Uh, but at that time, Shake Shack was, uh, I think, just a little shack in uh, Madison Square Park. And from there, he launched numerous fine dining restaurants, most notably Union Square Cafe, legendary. And his book taught me in words and instances many ways that I could manage. And the idea of restaurant, kitchen, culinary management was put into such clear and precise terms and into such tools and patterns that made such great sense that I was addicted and I realized I had to work for this guy. So after a couple more stints in Colorado, I set off for New York with the dream of working for Danny Meyer. Uh, reality check. You don't just walk into a Danny Meyer restaurant, a suit from Goodwill with a resume and uh, hope that you're going to get hired. Uh, so it took a minute. And uh, I worked at what I thought would be a legendary sushi restaurant. And it was not. It was a tourist trap. And it was not pleasant. I wrote about it once for uh, a website called Eater. If you feel like Googling it, you certainly could. So from there, I waited. And I bounced around a little bit. I worked at some uh, fine dining restaurants that were, were on their last legs. But I got a taste for New York fine dining and what it could entail. And I'll never forget a magical lunch shift. I got to wait on Ian McShane. And Ian McShane uh, is from the TV show Deadwood and other things. A fantastic Shakespearean actor. And just being able to see him in person and serve him, I don't know, some eggs Benedict that was overpriced. I was hooked. I was addicted. And I knew that I was never going to leave New York. At least New York fine dining. So with these skills, I waited. And eventually, after a, I'm sure more than one resume submission, I got a call from a restaurant called The Modern. The Modern is in MoMA. It's not a museum restaurant, although it is located in a museum. This was a, a power player's restaurant, a celebrity's restaurant, the artist's restaurant. It was kind of a dream restaurant for people that want to experience what it's like to live in New York. Kanye in one section, Anna Wintour in the other. Uh, David Bowie is at the bar. 
it was everything that you could dream of. And the food was out of this world. Futuristic techniques, rustic techniques, uh, fish from all over the world, techniques that, that blended cultures and cuisines. It was everything to me. And I started as a front waiter there. A front waiter is basically a glorified busser. Uh, I was in charge of setting the table, oddly enough. And oddly enough, The Modern was one of Danny Meyer's restaurants. I was trained at an orientation with Danny himself. And uh, because I had read the book and I knew the principles there, I accelerated rapidly to captain. Captain, man, that was the job. Bespoke tailored suit, silver-plated crummer. It was everything you wanted to be. Shoes that clicked and clacked as we walked. Ah, man, I miss it. Table-side service, decanting wines that were $12,000 over an open candle flame. It was so beautiful, so regal, so elegant. And the money, the money was real good. And so from there, um, I learned. And I had to describe so much stuff to so many people without sounding pretentious, without sounding holier than thou. And that was a real balancing act from that job. And I realized that I was pretty darn good at talking about food. And when you can really talk about food and you can talk about the mechanics of cookery, you kind of already know half the battle of cookery. And so from there, I tried out for a Food Network show. They said, well, you're not a cook, you're a waiter. And I said, well, how hard could it be? And perhaps they liked my cavalier attitude as a 27-year-old. Perhaps I actually did have some talent. But I ended up trying out for the show, getting on the show, and somehow uh, my partner and I at that time ended up winning the show. We had to make a restaurant in 24 hours. I didn't realize this at the time, but I got addicted to wearing a microphone and being on TV. I liked the performance aspect, and I liked the performance aspect of fine dining. It felt like a stage. And maybe, maybe growing up, what I really wanted it to be was on a stage. I got the lead role in a high school play as a freshman. I was in all the drama classes. And so maybe TV was for me. Hmm, how do I do more of this? Well, they didn't call back and they didn't call back, but my head swelled and I met some friends that all lived in the same neighborhood. And from there, we decided that we would launch a very DIY, very bootstrap, but also eventually legendary restaurant called Do or Dine in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, New York. This was the wildest restaurant I think many, many people had ever been to at that time. It was not fine by any means. It was fun. We had foie gras donuts. And uh, these foie gras donuts ended up uh, attracting a lot of attention, some good, some bad. But it made an international splash. We had people from all over the world interviewing us about our food and about these foie gras donuts. We had NHK TV from Japan come to investigate the Japanese influence of our deviled eggs. It was a wild ride. Any idea was possible. We felt as though we were at the top of our world. We were at the height of creativity and that nothing could be more fun. Where we kind of messed up there is that uh, doing the books isn't exactly fun. Numbers aren't exactly fun. The behind the scenes of running a restaurant, that's the stuff they don't show on TV. You know, the finances, the finances are, are everything. And this is what we call foreshadowing. Eventually, I got a call from a casting agency that wanted me to try out for Food Network Star. 
now having uh, some degree of cooking and restauranting under my, my belt, as we didn't have uh, money to hire a chef, so I took on the role myself, uh, I had to try out. It would be good for the restaurant. It would be national exposure yet again. And ultimately, I would be back on the culinary stage. So after jumping through numerous hoops, I was paired with legendary culinarian and food science authority, Alton Brown. And uh, I ended up winning that show 11 episodes later through intense competition with people that could cook better than I could and some people that could articulate better than I could, but seemingly nobody that could do both better than I could. America voted, more than 2,000 votes were cast, and yours truly was certified as the next Food Network star. From there, a cookbook deal manifested. We launched the laws of cooking and how to break them. And while I had my head in the clouds, do or dine closed. It was heartbreaking. It was sad. Uh, it was the end of an era, and it was the end of a lot of things. Uh, but it was not the end of my television career, because thankfully I was scooped up by none other than Guy Fieri and asked to participate on his shows, and here we are today. I got a little burned out in New York. It felt like we were spending a lot of money to live in a place uh, that felt like a theme park. It was hard to get the time off from my wife's restaurant jobs running a ramen shop, and uh, from my gigs, it was hard to align what we were doing and how we could thrive together as a couple. So we visited Rapid City, South Dakota, where I live currently. We'd visit to hang out with family uh, over holidays, and I loved the small town life. I got kind of addicted to that then, and the possibilities and the inexpensive nature of what it costs to live, the simplicity, the beautiful old architecture. And I thought to myself, you know, it's people like this who are connected to agriculture, to where food comes from. They need a chef. It's not New York. New York doesn't need another chef. While we were there, we saw old timers, if you will, in an RV. And I said to my wife, you know, Brooke, it's a shame you have to retire to enjoy life in an RV. Somehow this sparked interest in her. And she Googled what was essentially the millennial's guide to living in an RV. Now, this was pre-pandemic by a year plus, mind you. So we sold everything. We had a life liquidation sale. And uh, we moved into an RV that we purchased in uh, Pennsylvania. And we hit the road. Uh, we drove to South Dakota first to utilize the driveway because we knew of no other driveways between New York and South Dakota. We renovated the RV. And we got stuck here for a couple of months. But it wasn't stuck. We just didn't have an RV that worked. And I got to sample the local cuisine. And I got to meet the kind of the local tastemakers, if you will. It was a blast. I got addicted to the access to nature. I got addicted to the rolling plains. And something about it spoke to me. But once the RV was fixed, we were determined to find the next big city where we would live. It could be Austin. It could be New Orleans. It could be Atlanta. It could be San Diego. It could be Los Angeles. It could be Seattle. But as we ventured out, uh, although all of those cities had amenities and food scenes that were world-class, there was something about Rapid City that kept calling us back. And so right before the pandemic, uh, we came back, we found a house, somehow we managed to buy it, and we, run, we ran some numbers. And as long as I kept my food TV gigs alive, we would be able to make some money and uh, own a house also. Hot diggity. Sticks and bricks, as they call it. But then the pandemic happened, and uh, I panicked. 
because Hollywood shut down and my livelihood making food television and all of the gigs associated with it shriveled. The influencer market, which I happened to be at that time, crumbled. No one was interested in influencers. It was all about TikTok. It wasn't about tastemakers. It was all about views and virality. It was about stunts, not about accolades and acumen or how many books you had written or what countries and cities you had traveled to. And I got real scared. So I said to Brooke, Brooke, we need to make a lemonade stand. I don't care what it is, what we serve, but we need to transact in hard, tangible goods that people can get regardless of mask mandates and beyond. So we started Rapid City's very first ramen shop. And uh, I think South Dakota's very first to-go only ramen shop. We started this in a bakery. And uh, that presented itself with many uh, benefits and also many challenges. In addition to trying to figure out how to build a to-go only restaurant, also known as a ghost kitchen, in a bakery. So uh, the bakery, good news, came with lots of ovens. What it did not come with was gas and ventilation. So I had to figure out how to crack the code of turning a bakery into a ramen shop with minimal investment on my part. We ended up doing this by making our broths in massive pots in a giant walk-in oven. Heat is heat, after all. And thankfully, with the thermostat on an oven, it's like having someone who can turn the flame on a giant stove on and off all night long. So from there, we go from bone to bowl in 48 hours, and we create beautiful, rich, emulsified broths. I was able to find noodles, world-class noodles from a company called Sun through a local distributor, but they only delivered once a month uh, because we are at the far reaches of their uh, delivery radius. And so that was another challenge. How could I possibly predict how many noodles I would need in a month? Well, we haven't run out of noodles yet. We've had some close calls. From there, the restaurant went insane. Uh, we were overrun the very first day. Our advertising consisted of one Facebook post. We had a convoluted ordering system that you had to order from our website online, and then you would be assigned a window to pick up your food. This could be 4.30. This could be 7.30. It all depended on how quickly you got your order in. Believe it or not, this worked like a charm because everybody ordered at 4.30, right when the window opened, and we had all of our orders lined up for the entire evening. We were so busy. We had to hire people on day one. Luckily, we hired a lifelong friend and someone who had actually worked at Do or Dine nearly 10 years earlier. This felt great. The little mom and pop ramen shop was busier than it could handle. It was bursting at the seams with to-go orders. And eventually, we decided to open our dining room. The dining room is small. It's about 30 seats with the bar included. And it's packed nearly every night. From there, we realized we needed to figure out a way to expand. But we didn't want to lose the homey nature. So we opened a private dining room complete with Korean karaoke. It's a hit. It's booked more nights than it isn't. So from here, we thought to ourselves, well, there's a little space around the corner that connects to the ramen shop in the uh, shared hallway of the building. What does Rapid City not have that we dreadfully want? And that was natural wine. We believe that natural wine is more than a trend. Uh, natural wine is, to us, a future of drinking. To us, natural wine is the future of environmentally conscious alcohol consumption. So from there, uh, less than a year after opening the ramen shop, we got to work on opening BB's, BB's Natural Wine Bar and uh, South Dakota's second 
natural wine bar after Gist in Sioux Falls. It, of course, of course, the pandemic, uh, well, slowed and TV gigs came back and all's well that ended well. Of course, it's not over. I have a lot of questions that I ask myself. Do I think it was uh, the right decision to actually open as opposed to close during the global pandemic? Yes. Yes, very much so. Because I was selling soup. And what people needed was soulful things. The pandemic, in addition to being physically crushing, was soul crushing. It felt as though there was no hope. There were no glimmers of creativity. You couldn't even get a hug from your grandma without fear of endangering grandma's health. Soup was the right choice. Soup that brought some of the rest of the world, a closed country like Japan, to our fingertips via online ordering that people could grab and go and kind of prepare themselves at home and customize to their own whim felt great. I think it was not only responsible the way we did it, but it helped. And it, it made people feel that even if there isn't an end in sight, there's a way that we can experience small joys. And I think that restaurants, all in all, are about the small joys, the comfort, even if it's a cup of coffee. It's a way to treat yourself or someone that you love well through a physical gift and something that nourishes. After all, we can live without music, we can live without movies, but without food, without calories, it's a pretty grim existence. So business is booming. Business is great. I am thrilled. South Dakota has a marvelous economy and uh, we have tourism all summer long, visiting our beautiful natural uh, resources the Badlands and the Black Hills and uh, Mount Rushmore, for better or worse. So uh, this begs the question, what's next for me? I don't know, man. I just had a kid. I love him to death. And uh, now I'm addicted not to money, not to hospitality, not to moving the needle of South Dakota's culinary frontier. I'm addicted to watching my kid grow and to nourishing my child and to hopefully making a great citizen of Earth. I don't care if the kid turns out to be a restaurateur or a culinary celebrity. All I want is for the kid to make the world better than he found it. And I think and I hope that uh, when my time is up, the legacy that I've left and the restaurants that I've made and the recipes that I've developed will be looked at as net good, as chaotic as the journey has been. So what do I have for advice uh, for those of you uh, who may be considering a life in restaurants or those of you who may be uh, in restaurants and trying to navigate your path. To me, it has always come down to the right place at the right time with the right people, with the right money, and the right attitude. If you can find the confluence of those five things, which is incredibly difficult, maybe, just maybe, you should make a restaurant. To me, uh, the most important things are the people, the money, and the attitude. The right place and the right time, you can wiggle a little bit there. You can draw people to you. You can be ahead of the curve and wait until you are at the top or where you should be or in your heyday. I thought it would take a minute for people to figure out ramen in South Dakota, but uh, I misjudged grossly. We have an Air Force base here, and Air Force service members have been all around the world, oftentimes to Japan. They craved those noodles, and we brought them to them. To me, it's about the people, the attitude, and the money. What do I mean by that? If you don't have the right people who are in it for the right motivation, who are willing to lose money for some amount of time, you shouldn't open a restaurant. I like to look at, look at a restaurant as a Lamborghini that never goes anywhere, never does anything, that you can't drive, 
and uh, isn't necessarily a status symbol. But to me, with my attitude and the attitude of my staff, we're eating high on the hog, literally. We have pork belly that we can eat every single day. We have fantastic local South Dakota beef that is butchered specifically for us. We have local mushrooms, some of the treasures of the earth. And to me, when I know that I can eat well, I'm feeling better than anybody in a Lamborghini. So think on that a little bit. A restaurant is never going to be your private jet to destinations unknown. But what it can be is the place that you call home, where you watch people and relationships and the world around you change and grow through the lens of food. And to be honest, making people happy, watching people grow, it feels real good. And that's the currency that I like to uh, traffic in. If I could do anything differently in the past, I would have been less of a purist, less of a snob. When you're in the world of food and you're trying to be an expert in your field, snobbery comes easily. And I think there's something to be said about the context of food as opposed to the quality and the excellence of the food or the setting or the place. The context to me is the ultimate key. Boardwalk fries, soggy as can be, doused with malt vinegar at the beach. It beats any crispy fry any day. The beach is the key, of course. The perfect fries with a perfectly cooked steak at a French brasserie with a small salad of arugula lightly dressed simply with lemon on a sunny day, maybe a patio and a glass of wine. Nothing beats that. To me, uh, I should have been a little bit more open-minded about the people who were doing their best. It may not have been elegant. It may not have been expensive. And it may not have been pushing things forward. But what they were doing was keeping people fed. And that's what restaurateurs do. And if you have the mentality that making people well-fed and making people happy is where it's at. And as one of my uh, great mentors once said, if you can say to yourself, honestly, I'm here to make friends, not money, you'll probably end up making money. And I think that's ultimately the goal of a business. <sighs> this has been a lot. I'm sorry to talk your ear off. But I had to tell you all of that. And I kind of wanted to air my piece because I've been listening to uh, the ups, the downs, the successes, the thrills and the conundrums of this business. And I just kind of wanted to get it off of my chest. Uh, I've been fortunate over the past year to host this podcast. I've heard so many different stories and perspectives of restaurateurs all over North America. And it's been inspiring to hear how they've all been able to overcome their own obstacles and flourish in an industry that they have a true passion for. And now that you all know a little bit more about me and where I got my start, I'm hoping that that could inspire the next generation of amazing restaurant and hospitality workers to take a chance and put their best foot, knife, attitude, blood, sweat, tears, all of it, put it all forward and to put it on the line, literally sometimes. Thank you so much for listening and for all the support of this show. It's genuinely and honestly appreciated. I'm Justin Warner, and we'll catch you on the next one. The Resto Talk podcast is sponsored by Touch Bistro, the all-in-one POS and restaurant management system that makes running a restaurant easier. Know a restaurant owner who could benefit from a technology upgrade? Touch Bistro helps restaurateurs increase sales, deliver exceptional guest experiences, and save time and money. Refer them to Touch Bistro today and earn $1,000 cash. Visit touchbistro.com slash referrals to get started.